Welcome to our podcast, Heart Failure Morning Commute, Decisions in the Management of Heart Failure. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by independent educational grants from Boeinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Eli Lilly and Company, and from Merck Sharp and Dumb Corporation. In this episode, Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Dr. Javed Butler continue their discussion on heart failure therapies. When should therapies be combined, switched, or stopped? And they also talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the treatment of heart failure. Some may surprise you. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heartfailure6. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bott is Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs, Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, and a Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Boston. Dr. Butler is Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Mississippi, Jackson. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bott will begin our discussion. David, welcome back. In the previous podcast, we've discussed the foundational and new treatments for heart failure, but it all comes down to the patient in front of us for making the tailored treatment decisions that we really always ought to make. So let's talk about that and what we've learned in our practices. Perhaps we can just start with some of the basics for patient management, or maybe it's not that basic, you know, how to deal with combination therapies, when to switch therapies, when to stop therapies. And Prior podcasts, we've talked about foundational therapies, getting patients on things like beta blockers and ARNI and SGLT2 inhibitors and mineral corticoid receptor antagonists relatively quickly. But um, how exactly would you advise the audience to do that in terms of using combination therapies? Uh, And when might they consider switching therapies? And if side effects or other issues come up, uh, potentially stopping therapies, maybe the patient's ejection fraction improves. Is that a reason to stop? So uh, these issues come up all the time in practice. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so that's uh, that's obviously uh, uh, one of the most important questions, right? Because it's about patient management, and and uh, uh, there's a lot of layers here to sort of uh, peel off. So let, let's start. So first, you know, let's let's just think about how cancer doctors uh, think about treating their patients. You know, they say, well, you know, you have a life-threatening disease. This is a combination that we need to use. They will sit down with the patient, tell them the patient's side effects. Uh, And of course, we should not make light of side effects and managing them and avoiding them. It's really, really important. Uh, But the first order of business is to treat cancer and then you manage the side effects. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have that sort of a culture in, in, in cardiology and even with sort of some slight reason to cut down or not give therapy, we, we just go ahead and, and, and do that, uh, not realizing that uh, that we're putting patients a little bit at risk for worsening heart failure, mortality, morbidity, uh, and maybe management of these combination therapies really uh, is important. Uh, so w- what can we do? I mean, these are really, really simple clinical tricks, right? So let's take one by one. Uh, you're dizzy, you have orthostatic symptoms. Well, make sure that you're not uh, very dehydrated, giving a little bit extra fluid uh, uh, in the vasculature uh, may avoid that. Now, I don't mean to give IV fluid. What I mean to is that maybe you can cut back a little bit on their diuretic dose. Remember, RNA and SGLT2 and a bit of both increase 
uh, diuresis. So giving them a little bit more volume, cutting down on the diuretic may help. Uh, your blood pressure is low. Well, you know, your blood pressure is low or you're dizzy, uh, don't take all the medications at the same time. So along with managing diuretic, uh, you don't have to take every medicine at eight in the morning when you know you wake up and then all the medicine hit at you know 10:30 in the morning. Maybe take one pill at eight in the morning, take one at noon, take one at three. Now it does complicate things a little bit, uh, but one at a time, maybe it will be uh, helpful. But not all patients will be able to tolerate the highest doses. But remember, low doses are really, really beneficial. So at least give low doses if you cannot give uh, a high doses uh, overall. Uh, what about creatinine? Same thing. Uh, you know, work with the nephrologist, uh, send the patient to heart failure cardiologist rather than not treating the patient. Nephrologists and heart failure cardiologists may have a little bit more self-efficacy, a little bit more infrastructure in the clinics to deal with these secret patients and may be able to enable therapy despite that. And again, cut down sort of the dose of, of diuretic. Uh, what about you know uh, heart rate? Well, of course, that's that's sort of a little bit of a simple one. That uh, with beta blocker therapy, the benefit uh, is largely when you get a heart rate into the 60s. Uh, so if your heart rate you know, is 66 at uh, uh, carvedilol of, you know, 12.5 BID, that's good enough. I don't feel any compulsion to go up on the dose uh, to, to 25 BID. Hyperkalemia, you know, this used to be a big issue, especially with MRAs. Uh, but now, again, you know, we have these novel potassium binders like pterimer or uh, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate that has clearly been shown to be very well tolerated and they enable uh, MRA use or RASI use uh, across all the risk factors for patients. So CKD, diabetes, heart failure, high doses of therapy, aging patients, all of those things. So there's a lot of different ways. Now, some of these therapies actually enable each other. So if you give somebody who's congested, uh, who may not tolerate beta blocker, well, start with an RNA or an SGLT2 inhibitor. They will be less congested. They will tolerate beta blocker better. Uh, if somebody has uh, hyperkalemia, we know the data that with RNA and with SGLT2 inhibitor, they enable MRA use because the risk of hyperkalemia is less with SGLT2 inhibitor. So in other words, there's a lot of these tricks that we can do. So before we give up on the drug, we should at least try to do these things and if we are unable to do it or we are uncomfortable to do it, refer them to a specialist. Most of the patients should be able to be on some therapy at least. The last point you've said is, well, when do you stop the therapies? Now, this is a really difficult question because if somebody has low ejection fraction, you start them on therapies and their ejection fraction improves. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that their heart failure is cured? They don't have heart failure, so why take the medicines forever? Or does that mean that their ejection fraction is improved because of the therapy, and if you were to stop the therapy, their heart failure will get worse again? So we used to have our, all of us used to have our opinion, but now there's actually a randomized controlled trial called TREDHF that came out in Lancet that clearly shows that even patients who have stabilized, uh, stopping therapy is not a good idea because if you stop the therapy, not only there's a high risk for ejection fraction going down again, uh, there's no guarantee that restarting the medication will improve the ejection fraction again. Do I completely religiously follow what I just said that never touch the medication even if the EF improves? Well, not really, right? So you have to make some sort of individual decisions. So if somebody is, you know, 50-year-old and has heart failure, and I've started them on combination therapy, and they will live up to you know 75, and they'll take the medicine for 25 years. Uh, I feel bad about it, but I will not stop the medicine. 
But if somebody has a disease where the natural history is recovery, so you know, if you if I have a you know 23 year old postpartum cardiomyopathy patient who completely recovers, uh, you know, do you want to give this person you know drugs for for 60 years of their life? Maybe not. I, I tell you, I, I don't stop all the medication. I really sweat a lot, but I cut back one at a time and keep repeating echo and make sure things are right, you know, in the right direction. Maybe I don't stop all four and maybe just keep them on low dose days and a bit of beta blocker. I mean, there's sort of no guideline there. You kind of just sort of, for the lack of a better word, wing it based on the individual patient. But that's the kind of patient uh, that I may cut back. But as a general rule, even if the EF gets better, you don't stop the therapy. Yeah, I'm sort of of that same mindset of don't rock the boat. Even before TREDHF, I sort of thought if the patient's tolerating it well without side effects, that's a key part of it. Why uh, subtract therapies if they're not demanding that you subtract therapies? Uh, and I think now there's, as you mentioned, data to support that sort of common sense approach. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the potassium binders because I think spironolactone sort of got a bad reputation. Well, part of it's because of, you know, fears of gynecomastia and, and I think appropriate sort of concerns, but part of it has also been the hyperkalemia, but, but the availability of potassium binders, I think really does uh, change the equation in their trials that are going on, um, looking at these agents even more closely in different applications. But I think they're agents that nephrologists are pretty comfortable with. I don't know that most cardiologists or even heart failure cardiologists I don't know. Do you think that's a class of drugs that should be in our comfort zone? Much like we're saying these days, SGLT2 inhibitors or drugs that heart failure cardiologists and, and perhaps even general cardiologists should be familiar with. Does that also apply to potassium binders or not? Yeah, no, mo most certainly, right? So, so I think the difference between cardiologists and nephrologists is that uh, uh, nephrologists uh, treat uh, hyperkalemia. Cardiologists cause hyperkalemia, right? So there's a little <laughs> bit of a psychological difference uh, there between the, the, the two uh, uh, specialties. Uh, but also, uh, let's see, you know, the, there's some really good data coming out with finerenone, uh, which is a non-steroidal uh, MRA. Uh, and you really have no progestational side effects like gynecomastia and, and all that kind of stuff. And the risk of hyperkalemia is less. Uh, so the answer is absolutely as before giving up on MRA, you have a lot of benefit from MRA. And before you give up on MRA, uh, uh, use these potassium binders. And in fact, both the cardiovascular and the kidney kidigo guidelines are now recommending that before you cut down on RASI therapy, whether it's uh, uh, ACE inhibitor or with MRA, uh, try these potassium binders. And these are not specialty specific, either cardiology or nephrology. Uh, these therapies should be used because because really the prognosis get bad if you if you stop the good medical therapies. Yeah, really wonderful points. Uh, so we talked a little bit about hyperkalemia, its management. Any other side effects uh, that you want to mention with these different therapies and combinations of therapies that we haven't already covered? Maybe dealing with things like hypotension. I know that's been one uh, sort of concern that has limited to some extent conversion of patients on ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker to ARNI, where doctors are a little worried about what if hypotension occurs, how are they going to manage that, especially in an outpatient setting, uh, especially in an outpatient setting where maybe uh, in-person visits are a little bit trickier because of COVID, we'll come back to COVID. We have to talk about COVID, but, but uh, anything else you want to say about management of potential side effects? Yeah, so I'm glad you sort of reminded me. So in terms of the switching, uh, honestly, uh, unless and until there is a, a, a contraindication or uh, there is a lack of availability, 
Uh, I think all ACE inhibitor patients at this point are our patients should be converted to RNE uh, if you have heart failure with uh, reduced uh, uh, ejection fraction. And in terms of the hypotension, uh, remember, it's a different thing that if somebody has de novo heart failure and you're starting RNE and to see what happens to the blood pressure or to creatinine. But if somebody is on chronic ACE inhibitor therapy, a lot of that blood pressure or the renal effects with RAS inhibitor is sort of weaved in. Now, clearly, with the addition of neprilysin inhibitor, you have that risk goes up a little bit more. Uh, but we are talking about, if you look at the trial, uh, the risk of you know symptomatic hypotension maybe you know nine percent versus thirteen percent. I mean it's not dramatically different. And again, those sort of the common tips that we talked about in terms of uh, uh, diuretic dose and spacing the medications and those kind of things uh, really help uh, uh, in that sense. Now there may be some niche side effects, and and one can sort of go into those things. So you know angioedema with uh, ACE inhibitor RNA. So especially uh, give some good uh, education to patients, especially the black patients are at a higher risk for angioedema. So keep that in mind. Uh, if it is uh, mild angioedema, you know, if it is significant, then obviously you seek medical help. But even if it's mild angioedema, you just stopped it and that angioedema went away or, or, or you maybe just took some antihistamine, uh, just because it's mild angioedema, don't try the drug again. I mean, you're, you basically have a contraindication and just, just don't uh, use the drug per se. Uh, you know, a lot has been made about beta blocker and depression or beta blocker and, and bronchospasm. But again, uh, switching the uh, drug from uh, uh, selective, non-selective, uh, uh, those things tend to get mitigated. And again, uh, rather than totally compromising, at least giving low doses, uh, is, uh, is still very beneficial. So most of the patients should be able to at least get some doses of these therapies. Yeah, that's a really nice summary of, of a lot of different uh, uh, side effects that might potentially come up, but putting them in the proper perspective. So what about innovation in heart failure? There's just, I think we've covered in the series of pod podcasts, a lot of different innovations, but there's still more to come. So what do you think is really gonna change practice in terms of drugs, in terms of devices? but also in terms of strategies, not just um, drugs and devices. Yeah, so we are living in, it's in just sort of unbelievable times. And obviously, uh, you know, I'm in a, in, a, in a mature stage of my career, but, but I can guarantee you that even uh, before I retire, the way we practice medicine would have changed uh, than even what we are doing uh, right now. Uh, so, for instance, uh, all the advances that are coming on with uh, not only the genetics, but the microRNA therapy and targeting a specific biology, pathophysiology, uh, all the omics uh, revolution that is uh, out there and trying to better understand pathways and come up with uh, different uh, diagnostic uh, device therapies and, and, and how they can uh, reshape the heart, recover the heart, prevent uh, things from happening. Uh, and then the way we uh, manage uh, patients, I mean, the, the amount of remote data. Now, granted, we are not totally there how to exactly use these remote data, uh, but I think a lot will, will be switching to the patients. You know, I sort of say that uh, the doctors and the nurses are sort of the coaches, but the patients are the players, and, and, and they will be playing the game more and more. We just need to educate them better to be so, so that they are better players. But uh, there are so many things coming out measuring uh, every which way the cardiovascular uh, uh, renal physiology non-invasively uh, by either implantable devices, apps, or things that you wear on your body. Uh, and those things are directly fed right now to the clinicians, but eventually will be fed to the patients uh, that they can uh, adjust their medications. So targeted therapy, different ways of uh, uh, strategies uh, to manage these uh, patients, more devices. So there is a metaverse of medicine uh, coming as well, and uh, it, it'll be quite exciting. 
Yeah, the metaverse in all ways is pretty exciting. Actually, it, it uh, really died today on the stock market, but that's a separate story. But but I think ultimately there is really going to be a role for everything that you mentioned. There's no question that wearables are going to change the management, not just of heart failure, but a variety of different conditions. I think already an invasive sorts of monitoring, I'm talking about uh, for example, the pulmonary artery uh, uh, monitoring the, the sensors for heart failure uh, are, uh, you know, in common use in many practices. We use them quite a bit to keep an eye on our patients, say, that are referred for Maine, but, you know, we can't see them in person uh, as frequently. But, but I think the next step in that evolution is to go from the invasive implantation of those things to just wearables. So uh, I, I think that uh, revolution's already started and will accelerate in years to come for sure for heart failure, but, but other disease states uh, as well. Um, you know, the final thing that I think it's probably worth covering is the issue of COVID-19. There's just no way we can go through these uh, six podcasts that you and I have done together uh, where I've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you and learned so much from you. I, I don't think we can end uh, without talking a little bit about COVID. And for sure, uh, in relation to what we were just speaking about, uh, changes in heart failure management, I think COVID-19 has taught us a lot. I hope things that endure past the pandemic, assuming we get out of the pandemic, but but past that time where things such as televisits and remote monitoring, uh, I hope are here to stay for heart failure and other related disease states. I think it's very patient-centric. Uh, patients don't want to always drive in uh, to the uh, physician's office or hospital. Sometimes they do want that personal connection, but you know, sometimes they just as soon avoid the traffic and the you know, hour-long wait in the doctor's office and so forth. So uh, what do you think about the impact of COVID on healthcare and heart failure in particular? Yeah, so before I, I talk about COVID, there was a really important point that I completely missed uh, 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 to talk about, and that is when we talked about patient management and enablement and, and therapies and switching, uh, is the importance of uh, doing these things when a person is in the hospital. Uh, not only are they at the highest risk, but there is actually a really good teachable moment. And for many chronic diseases, we know that the therapies that are started in the hospital have the highest chance of uh, long-term adherence and compliance with, uh, to the point that the European guidelines now have a class one recommendation to start GDMT prior to discharge from the hospital. Uh, you know, unlike an outpatient 15 minute visit where the person is there and have multiple complaints. Now you have, you know, three, four days in the hospital. Maybe you have some support with pharmacy and nursing. You can educate the patient and the family members. Uh, so really let's not, not uh, miss out on the opportunity uh, in the hospital. Now that brings us to this COVID-19 thing. So the COVID-19 uh, saga has just been sort of really fascinating. Uh, uh, one uh, is that we learn how agile we can be if we want it to be. So the processes that would have taken months and years in regular healthcare system, uh, we just sort of bypassed all of these processes that, that, that innovation that would have taken a decade, uh, we just sort of got there in, in a week, right? So uh, televisits, uh, phone calls, uh, different platforms through electronic health record, video calls, FaceTime, whatever in the beginning that was allowed. Now, again, we should not take that lightly. There are HIPAA concerns, there are uh, privacy concerns, and I think we will get there, but telemedicine makes a huge difference uh, uh, in patients. And what we have learned is that there is really no credible evidence that the reduction in hospitalizations and increase in televisits and decrease in sort of uh, in-person clinic visit 
uh, is uh, related to or translated to, into a higher mortality for heart failure patients. So in other words, these alternate ways of managing the patients, which are much more patient-centric, uh, you can still uh, uh, get uh, pretty good, good clinical outcomes. And if you marry that with, with either home health laboratory or point-of-care testing at home, uh, I think this will be the future, uh, and we should try to embrace it and improve uh, how we manage these patients remotely. I absolutely agree with everything that you said. I mean, it's just really great um, sort of insights into the positive impacts of COVID-19. I'd be remiss in not, of course, acknowledging what a negative impact COVID-19 has had on the world, obviously, but on cardiovascular disease as well. A number of studies showing worsening of risk factor control. I'm sure there's going to be downstream consequences of that in terms of atherosclerotic and heart failure complications also in, in other fields as well, cancer surveillance and so forth. And, and, and as well, I, I would have to acknowledge uh, the incredible role that healthcare workers have played in this pandemic. I'm, I'm sure many of the folks in our audience have been on the front lines and, and uh, dealing with the issues of COVID. Maybe even some are feeling burnt out from COVID, but I'd, I'd like to just acknowledge all the efforts out there in our audience of, of the healthcare workers. Well, you know, Javed, it's been a wonderful discussion with you today on this podcast and the previous five podcasts. I would ask the audience if they're listening to this one, but they've missed any of the prior ones to tune into those and uh, see what sort of perspectives uh, we might have shared with respect to heart failure. Before concluding, I just want to turn to you and see what final pearls of wisdom you might have for our audience, not just from this particular episode, but all our episodes, some take-home points. Yeah, I would say that the heart failure landscape has uh, changed. Uh, so for one, uh, the best treatment of heart failure is prevention. And there's a lot of things that we can do to prevent heart failure. So please think about prevention of heart failure, whether it's blood pressure control, SGLT2 inhibitor, bariatric surgery, lifestyle modification. So that's one. The second uh, is that keep heart failure in the differential diagnosis because the symptoms are nonspecific, tiredness, fatigue, shortness of breath. And while we rule out other things, please consider natriuretic peptide screening and appropriate referral for uh, echocardiography and think about heart failure in your differential diagnosis. Uh, that there are a lot of therapies that are available to our patients and giving these therapies uh, at least at low doses can substantially improve the outcomes uh, for these patients. Uh, and if uh, anybody is feeling uncomfortable, uh, referring them to specialist uh, uh, centers uh, can really change their natural history and the trajectory of the disease process. Uh, and lastly, uh, be on the lookout. A lot of uh, further innovation is coming. And, uh, and Deepak, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure uh, to uh, talk to you uh, through these uh, several uh, podcast series. Yes, likewise, a real pleasure. And I think you've summarized things well. And the key is uh, you made a very nice point in one of the podcasts with heart failure. If you can prevent it, that's the best approach of all. And there are things that can be done with respect to lifestyle modifications. So that's always the bedrock of what we should be recommending to our patients. But then beyond that, and folks that actually have heart failure, certainly lifestyle modification continues to have a role. But there are medical therapies important. And it's important to get that medical therapy started early and to escalate quickly. And that therapy should include agents such as the ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, now more recently, uh, ARNI uh, substituting for them uh, in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Uh, beta blockade, of course, has been important for years. MRAs, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, uh, really important, uh, though underutilized part of that armamentarium. The SGLT2 inhibitors, really uh, a big advance and. Uh, 
a major role in heart failure that's going to continue to grow. And for patients that need therapies beyond that, we discussed Verisigwad and what that can offer. Um, so, you know, those are important considerations in terms of the medical therapy. And then, of course, there's device therapies that we need to think about, uh, things like ICDs and cardiac resynchronization therapy. But then, in a referral practice, uh, are patients at a point where they need to be referred on to a transplant center for consideration of transplantation and uh, LVADs. LVADs, of course, have come a long way with durable LVADs uh, and uh, newer generations with uh, lower rates of side effects and complications. Most recently as well, xenotransplantation uh, has captured the nation and world's attention, and it's very likely that this is something that's here to stay, uh, starting off with um, the uh, pig heart transplant, but but I imagine that's going to extend uh, to other organs as well. So very exciting time in heart failure. And hopefully this series of podcasts has given the audience a sense of that excitement. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heart failure six. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.